Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a good God and you love us. More than that, God, you are our Father. And God, you're a perfect Father. You're a Father that our Father should have been. Your word says that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And God, we declare that we trust you. We trust your goodness even though sometimes, God, we don't understand it. We trust your character even though it's uh, so rich and unfathomable that, God, we only see a piece of who you really are. But God, we trust you because what we see of you is so incredible. So, God, we place our hands, our, ourselves in your hands tonight. And, God, I just ask that you would help me to speak clearly and to communicate the things that I believe you've laid on my heart. And I pray, God, that they would penetrate and that, God, the things that are of you would stick. And that, God, they would take root in our hearts. And that, God, that they would lead us further down the path of relationship with you. Understanding that you, God, are our source. Our source of life. Our source of hope. God, the source of everything that we need comes from you. So, God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't always start with things that kind of are uh, of interest just to me, but tonight I thought I would start a little bit, show the geeky side of me. I know that there's a couple other geeks in here, but uh, I may be going out on a limb and being one of the few. Uh, anybody familiar with chess? A little bit. Um, chess has always fascinated me, and uh, I don't know why, but I'm not a I'm not a deep chess student of, by any stretch of the imagination. But I probably am a little deeper than most of you guys are, just because there aren't that many of us out there that pay attention to chess. But right now, um, in uh, Berlin, they're going through the uh, World Rapid and Blitz Championships, and there's a young man named Magnus Carlsen, who is Norwegian, who was born in 1990 who is uh, the highest ranked player on the planet right now. And he's uh, 24. And he's been a grand master for a long time. He got his uh, GM when he was, I want to say he was 13 at the time. So he was pretty young. That, that's a pretty high achievement. And we have some very young grandmasters that are out there. But chess itself is pretty interesting to me. Uh, there are 32 pieces on the board, right? You got some chess pieces, you got pawns, you got rooks, you got bishops, you got kings and queens, right? There's 32 pieces on a board which are comprised of 64 squares. You with me so far? Staying within the rules of chess, in other words, they have to be a legal move. After your two players make two legal moves, well, let's start with one legal move. After one legal move, all the different legal moves, you can have 400 different possible positions after one move per player. Okay, So in other words, one guy will move his pawn from E2 to E4, and he's done. The other guy can move his, his uh, let's just say, um, another pawn on the same E rank, move it down. Right. So. After that, there's, there's, you got two possible positions. But if you take all the possible positions that you can have after two moves, one, one on each side, you can have 400 different possibilities. 
After two legal moves, you're at 71,852 possible positions. You guys, are anybody in here a mathematician? So it's permutations and combinations which we're talking about here, right? So if you do any kind of work with statistics. In the wrong class. Yes. <laughs> after 40 moves, okay, after 40 moves, do you guys want to guess what, how many possible positions you could have after 40 moves? They say, this is an estimate, 10 to the 80th power. 10 to the 80th power. You guys have any concept how big 10 to the 80th power is? 10 to the 80th power. That's uh, Eddington's number, by the way, which is said to be the number of electrons there are in the observable universe. Now, you guys know what an electron is, right? Molecules are made up of a nucleus surrounded by electrons and neutrons, right? So if you take all, they say that in the observable universe, there are fewer than that, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. Um, 10, by the time you get to all possible positions that you have in, on a chessboard, they estimate that it's 10 to the 10 to the power of 50. So if you take 10 to the power of 50, and then you take 10 and Multiply it out 10 to the 50th power that many times. That's how many possible positions you have on the chessboard. You guys have any idea how big that number is? It's huge. Basically, that's an infinite number of positions. I mean, if you want to be real honest with you, my brain is not big enough to comprehend the size of that number. 10 to the 10 to the 50th power. Okay. This is a game made up of 32 pieces and 64 squares conceived by man. You with me so far? A little board. Now, I, when I was growing up, um, we, I grew up in Papua New Guinea, which is a little nation north of Australia. And I remember flying from, we flew from San Francisco to Honolulu, Hawaii for the first leg of our journey. And my parents, bought me a magnetic chess set, okay? So it was little, it was a travel chess set, so it folded into, you know, probably about that big. So what is that, maybe four by, four by three inches, somewhere in there, folded up and all the pieces were inside it. And so I traveled with that thing. That tells you, I mean, that's a small board, right? My point is that a finite person created a finite, game that has, for all practical intents and purposes, infinite possibilities. When we define God, we define God in a very finite sense, right? Well, I know God. He is a father. Well, what does that mean when I say God is a father? Well, what we do is we take our perception of what a father should be, and we say, or our own experience of, well, my dad was such and such, so therefore God might. And we put those stamps on God, right? We define God in a finite manner, but God is truly, in every sense of the word, infinite. But how do we understand the infinite? And I want to challenge you guys tonight. 
When I talk about God as our source, we have to talk about it in finite terms. In other words, well, I'm sick, I need healing. Well, what are you sick with? Well, I have a cold. I have a, I have a sore throat, so I need to be healed from a sore throat. That's a very finite view, correct? I have a very small problem, and I have a God that I want to solve a very small problem. Even if we take a larger problem, there's famine in the world, correct? Now, that's a pretty large problem, but it's still pretty finite, isn't it? Well, where's the, where's the famine located? Well, there's a famine in the Sudan. Okay, well, Sudan, we can send food, and we can address that finite problem. It's, again, a large problem, but it's a finite problem. Well, an, an even bigger problem. There's a problem of sin in the world, right? How many people are there on the planet? All of us are sinners. But at the same time, we get to a finite position. Again, you with me? Can God solve a finite problem? Absolutely. Can God solve an infinite problem? Yes, God can solve an infinite problem. Why? He's God. Now, let's take it back just a couple of steps. When I was in Youth with a Mission, we had a, a drama that we called Toymaker and Son. And if, I've, I've mentioned this before. I don't know how many of you guys have seen Toymaker and Son, but basically it's, it's, a, it's a dramatic presentation put to music and narration. And as a participant in the drama, I dressed up as an old Swiss toymaker. So I had a big full beard. And I was young at the time, but I had a gray beard, so I put powder and all kinds of stuff in my face, right? And I wore these, I don't know what you'd call them, but, you know, the suspender with the, it comes down to your knees, you know, and then I had red tights on underneath. Yeah. Yellow shirt with a, you know, like a, one of those real ugly 70s uh, tuxedos, you know, with the frilly thing. And so I would run around stage and I would dance and jump and do all kinds of stuff. I was toy maker. And as we went through this presentation, the whole idea was that there was this toy maker who created a whole bunch of toys and gave them life. Kind of like the idea of Pinocchio, right? Gave them life, they go and do their thing, and eventually they start doing things that the toy maker didn't design them to do. You guys get the idea, right? It's an allegory. Very finite in its communication, but the idea was to present a much bigger concept. Toy maker had a problem. His solution was to send his son to go into the world of the toys and make a change. It was the gospel story. You got done, you presented it, went through it, dealt with sin, a whole bunch of different things, right? But it was amazing because most people got the idea pretty quickly. So we would do this presentation everywhere. I was in Oslo, Norway at a rock concert, and we did this thing. It was kind of interesting because we got a whole bunch of people drugged out of their minds, and here we are doing our thing. We actually saw hundreds of people get saved that night. It was a big deal. It was awesome. We also had some very other interesting 
experiences to go along with that too. But they understood, you present the gospel to people, they understand. But what is the gospel? It's the story of an infinite God who realizes that there's a finite problem and he addresses it. Does he address it once? And it lasts forever? Or did he address it each individual? Well, I, here's, an, here's, a, here's the problem of murder. I'm going to address murder. I'm going to fix murder. Or did he say, I've got this whole thing taken care of? Yes. He addressed it forever. How can he do that? Well, you can use the simple answer because he's God, right? Because he's God. And that is a true statement. But why is it that God could take this problem and fix it so completely? What I'm going to communicate tonight will hopefully give this idea. But the reason why he could do that is because God is the originator, right? How can a toy maker address a toy problem? Well, he's the toy maker. He can address the toy problem. How can God address the man problem? He's the man maker. He is the source. It is out of him that all life exists, correct? Okay, so chess. Finite board for all practical purposes and intents, infinite possibilities. God created man, finite, but there are infinite possibilities for us. Now, why are there infinite possibilities for us? Because we were created by an infinite God. I want to define for you these terms. First one I want to define as source. From the Webster's 1828, the word source comes out of the Latin, and it means the spring or fountain from which a stream of water proceeds, or any collection of water within the earth or upon its surface, in which a stream originates. So you hear that word originate? This is called also the head of the stream. We call the water of a spring where it issues from the earth the source of the stream, we also say that springs that have their sources in subterranean ponds, lakes, or collections of water. We say that a large river has its source in a lake. Then he goes on, he says, the first cause, the original cause, that which gives rise to anything. The original, that which gives rise to anything. Thus, ambition, the love of power, and of fame have been the sources of half the calamities of nations. Then he also says this, the first producer, he or that which originates. Okay, you with me so far? What is the source? That from which something originates. The beginning. The source. Uh, I, I started thinking about how do you define God, right? I asked that question earlier. How do you define God? So in Webster's 1828, it defines God this way. The supreme being, Jehovah the eternal and infinite spirit, the creator, the sovereign of the universe. And he quotes John 4.24, if you guys remember that one. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
Well, that's a good definition, the supreme being, Jehovah, the eternal and infinite spirit. That's all good. But I was curious, how does God define himself? So I'm going to read a bunch of scriptures so that you can get a sense for how God defines himself. Genesis 17:1. When Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be ye perfect. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent you. Leviticus 11.45, For I am the Lord that brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Isaiah 41.4, who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I am the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory will not I give, I will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Isaiah 43:10. Understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Isaiah 44, 6, I am the first, I am the last, beside me there is no God. Isaiah 51, 15, you getting a picture of God? I am the Lord thy God that divided the sea, whose waves roared, the Lord of hosts is his name. Deuteronomy 32, 39, see now that I, even I, am he, there is no God with me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. Jeremiah 9.24 Let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercises loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Jeremiah 32.27 Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult for me? Ezekiel 38, 23, Thus will I magnify myself, sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Mark 14, 62, going into the New Testament now. Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. John 8, 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. John 8, 12, Jesus said again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And we've got to throw Revelation in there, right? Revelation 1, 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come. The Almighty. 118. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and earth. I'm sorry, hell and death. Revelation 22:16. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. 
Have you ever thought about who God calls himself? I hadn't really spent a whole lot of time thinking about it until I was preparing for this. When God says, I am that I am, what does that mean? Uh, if, you're, if you're sitting there saying, hey, I'm not sure how I'm going to do this, God, but you know, if I go in front of Pharaoh and I start telling him you know, that you know, we, these little people of Israel, we just kind of don't want to you know, be as slaves anymore, and, and you know, wh what am I going to do? And what does God say? Tell him, I am sent you. Unless that had real weight, that probably wouldn't have done a whole lot, right? But when I am says, I am sent you, go. And then Abram, uh, Moses says, but, well, I'm not so sure about that. You know, um, what do I do? And then God gave him all kinds of help, didn't he? Sent his brother with him. And Aaron did a few things with a staff that kind of confounded people. Then there were the plagues of Israel, um, plagues of Egypt that came along, right? And so God backed it up. How could God do that? Because God designed the earth. He is the source, and out of him springs all things. So God's most profound title is I Am. That, I, I, I don't know how you can beat that one. Uh, he states over and over and over again, there is only one. There's only one. There was none before me. There will be none after me. I am. God has absolute prerogative to do whatever he wants to. God alone is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. When he says, I am, he also follows it up by this thing. He says, I am holy. Be holy. Now, I was talking to Pastor Sam about this the other day. I was fascinated um, recently when I was reading something, and I've shared this a couple times with several different people, but I was fascinated because this um, writer, James Jordan, was talking about an interchange he had with a rabbinical scholar. And he said, listen, I don't know if I'm right or not, but I have this idea, and I want to run it past you because you're a rabbi and you understand the scriptures from a Hebrew mindset. And he says, when I read the Ten Commandments, I want to know, is this accurate? When I read the Ten Commandments, I don't read, don't do something. What I read is, this is who I am, be like me. In other words, God speaking, I would never dream of killing someone, and because you are mine, you won't either. I would never consider taking someone's, remember Nathan and David? You took the sheep. Remember that whole story? David says, I would kill that guy. You're the one who did it. I would never steal from Cameron. And because I would never do that, and you're mine, you won't ever want to do it either. In other words, the Ten Commandments is more a description of God's character and who he is than it is a proscription that you shall not do something. Yes, it's stated thou shalt not. But it's coming more from, this is who I am, you're mine, you won't want to, idea. And the rabbi said, absolutely, that fits completely within the context of Scripture. Yes, that is an accurate way of viewing that. And I thought, man, that's, that's wild. Because all my life, I looked at it as, I shall not. I won't do this, I won't do that. And a lot of times, even though those are good rules, I mean, think about it, when you get a whole bunch of rules, 
what do we want to do? Don't take the cookie out of the cookie jar. There's cookies, right? A lot of times when we're given a bunch of rules, we say, well, I want to break that rule. I want to do something, right? These are less rules and more character. This is who I am because I created you. You won't want to do this either. And I thought that, that is such a, that changes everything. At least in my mind it does. It changes everything. No longer is God saying, don't do it because I'm a big killjoy up in the heavens. And it's, oh, wow. You don't like doing that stuff. And I want to be like you. And I, I don't want to do that stuff either. There's a gentleman named Alan Smith who's pastoring in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. And he makes a couple statements that are, that are uh, pretty profound when he talks about God being our source. He says it like this. We were designed to be sons and daughters, to live from a place of security knowing that we are deeply loved and valued, that our worth is intrinsic and unshakable. Sin isn't the mere breaking of an arbitrary rule and the resulting guilt. It's both more and worse than that. Sin is disconnecting from God, our source. Do you guys get the idea? When we do something that's wrong, willfully disobey God, we're rejecting him. That's a big problem. When you think about the individual action, well, we categorize sin. Well, that's a big sin, and that's a little sin. That's just a little white lie, right? But when you look at it in the context of our relationship with God, every time we do something that is not the way God is, I'm holy, be you holy. When I do something that's unholy, I'm rejecting the one who created me. And in a sense, I am disconnecting from that source. I'm no longer connected. And it's not God who's disconnecting me. It's me choosing to do something else. When I was in Bible school, um, I played uh, volleyball competitively, and I traveled around the country playing uh, volleyball. And so I played with guys that were on the Olympic team. I wasn't good enough to be on the Olympic team, but I was good enough to play with them, if you guys can get the idea. So in other words, I was good enough to make them better. I just wasn't good enough to take their place. All right, so, but I played all over the place, and I was everywhere doing it, and uh, I was in the gym all the time. So this is at Bible school, so that tells you where my priorities were. But I would play volleyball all the time, all the time. Anywhere there was a tournament I was trying to get to, I had friends that were doing the same thing. And uh, I would play recreationally as well, but recreational wasn't very fun to me because I was, generally speaking, much better than the people I was playing with. So um, this one night I was having a pretty, I was having a bad day, and uh, I went to the gym to take out my aggressions, which is not necessarily a good thing. But I went there, and I was playing volleyball, and uh, I was the starting server, and I served 13 aces in a row. So I, I did a, a jump serve, and it was, it was a pretty good serve. Nobody got a hand on it on the other side. And so I was feeling a little bit better about myself. I had one final point to make, and I was going to do the, the final point because I wanted us to win. 
do you think anybody was having fun? Why would you play a recreational sport? Just, Josh, why would you play a recreational sport? For fun. Was anybody having fun? Was I having fun? Mm, yeah, probably, well, sort of, maybe. Somebody on the other side, who was a very good athlete, uh, played basketball for the University of Michigan. He was a starting point guard for the University of Michigan. Um, so a decent ball player. Um, yelled at me from the other side. And he said something like, now that you've proven you've got a really big head, could we play a game of volleyball? <laughs> well, I didn't take that very well. So I walloped a hard serve. You thought I had been hitting it hard before that. I wailed on it. It was a couple of inches out, and we side outed, and the other team got the ball. And instead of me staying to play, guess what I did? Spiritual man that I am. I walked away and left my spot on the floor vacant for somebody else to play. I sat down at the other side of the gym, pouting, and somebody came up to me and handed me a card. It had been my birthday the day before, and they handed me a late birthday card. And in it, the card said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So my response was, okay, God, now you're ganging up on me too. I didn't say it like that, though. I was a little bit more aggressive toward God, and I stormed to my room. And I kept the lights off, and I sulked in my dorm room for the next couple of hours. Eventually, I got to the place where I started praying. And my prayers weren't all that holy. They were basically, God, why could you do this to me? You know, it doesn't, it's not fair. Why are you ganging up on me too? And all this stuff. And a little while longer, after I was a little bit more quiet, this is what I heard. I really do think the world of you and I know you want a pure heart. Let me give it to you. So at that point, I couldn't be mad at God anymore because he was saying, I want to give you a gift. Right? Do you think God knew what he was doing when he sent that card to me? And do you think he was trying to beat me up? My first response was, yes, he was. But I can tell you right now from, I mean, it wasn't long, it was just a couple hours after that. But I can tell you now, God wasn't trying to beat me up. Because God is a good father who gives good gifts to his children. Remember this scripture? If you ask for bread, will I give you a stone? God really wanted to give me a pure heart. And he wanted me to know that he loved me. I just wasn't prepared to hear it. My question for you is this. If God is your source, and you recognize him as your source, are you ever going to get anything but life from him? Are you ever going to get anything but health from him? 
Are you ever going to get anything but truth from him? So if you get something that's not life, not health, not truth, who is your source? Is it God? When we talk about God as our source, we oftentimes will talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life in the garden. You guys familiar with this, these two trees? So God created the world, and then he created this beautiful paradise that we call the Garden of Eden. He placed Adam in the Garden of Eden. He formed and fashioned him there. And then he formed Eve and planted her there with Adam. And they walked and talked with God. And God said very clearly, this is all yours. You can eat of any tree in this garden except for that. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? Anything. In a very real sense, I would submit that God was truly the source for Adam and Eve. They walked with him. I can't imagine what those conversations would be, but I guarantee you it's not. Did you hear the Cubs won today? Right? I guarantee he wasn't asking about, well, Adam, how was your work going today? Why? Was Adam working at that point? I, he might have been, but there wasn't a whole lot to work at, was there? It was, there was all fruit to eat. He could do whatever he wanted to, but the curse had not yet come. And therefore, he wasn't out there slaving, trying to earn his living from the soil. So was he having to work at this process? Probably not. So what was he doing? In the cool of the evening, Adam walked with God. It's, it's got to be wild. What kind of conversations were they having? Adam, did you know I created you to be? I don't know what those conversations were, but I just can't imagine what they would be. But if you tried for a moment, what do you think God was telling Adam? Had to be some pretty incredible things, because Adam had a mind like, I don't think any, I mean, we think Einstein was smart. I guarantee you, Adam was much smarter. He was the first man made, I mean, God looked at Adam and said, this is good. So Adam had to be pretty amazing. He's talking about Magnus Carlsen. I bet you Adam could beat him in chess 100 times out of 100 times, a million times out of a million times. I guarantee you Adam was smart. God wasn't having dumb conversations with Adam. They were talking about stuff. I guarantee it. I don't know how long those conversations lasted. I don't know how many days Adam was in the garden before they decided that they were going to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But God was truly their source in a very real way. Well, then what happened? Adam said, that's all well and good, but. And then he chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And at that point, his source changed. Let me ask you this question. And I want, I want you to answer it honestly. 
Who or what is your source? As men, I'll talk to the men for a moment, a lot of times we find our identity in our jobs. It still happens to me fairly regularly where I'll meet someone. In fact, we had a block party last night in our neighborhood. And uh, I didn't have to ask the police officers what they did. It was pretty obvious. But there was another gentleman there. And one of the first questions I asked him was, what's your name? And shortly thereafter, what do you do? That's relatively normal. Why? Because our identity is so much wrapped up in that, and we identify so much with that one thing that a lot of times, that's the first. I'm not going to say, hey, well, I've done this before too, but I've never, I don't think, I've never walked up to a stranger and said, hey, I'm really hurting because I've got this problem and I was hoping you could help me with it. I've never done that. I will go up to him and I'll tell him, hey, my name is Matt, and I'll volunteer a bunch of stuff, but I won't go that deep, right? How many times do we go to God with the same shallow stuff? When God really wants to deal with the deeper things. Sin is not necessarily a problem with behavior. You guys with me? We categorize sin as behavior problems a lot of times, and we try to fix it with behavior modification. Sin is not a behavior problem, is it? Jesus said what? As you think in your heart. If a man looks upon a woman with lust, he has committed adultery. And it's real simple. Is it a behavior problem? Well, did I do anything? No. So what is a sin problem? It's a heart problem. And I would submit it's a source problem, right? I've disconnected from the source because now is sin life or is sin death? I know we're skipping a couple words here, but the wages of sin is death. If I engage in sin and I don't have a fix for the sin problem, I will die. What is the fix for a sin problem? Fix for a sin problem is getting connected to the source, getting connected to God. So I've gone over and around and beyond and underneath and, and all kinds of stuff here, but I, I'm hoping that you're getting the idea. Jesus saves us by offering a way for us to return to identity, to abandon self-reliance, to surrender again to God as our source. Jesus' death provides for our forgiveness, and the brokenness of his body becomes a door through which we can come home again. When Jesus came, he came to solve the sin problem. He didn't come to, save, to fix the behavior problem. Jesus is a lot less interested in your behavior than he is in your heart and who you really are. What is your identity? Who are you connected to? 
When he gave himself as an outpouring of love, he invited us to restoration as God's beloved. Jesus died that we might live again. Jesus, the son, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in order that we can be accepted? Jesus was buried so that the orphaned, self-reliant, self-protected version of us might be buried in him. Jesus rose from the dead that we might walk out of the grave of our exile from the garden into an eternity of life and identity and inheritance as children of God. I was also fascinated by this idea. Um, when, when God created Adam, what did he do? He formed this body out of dirt and clay. And then what did he do? What does scripture say he did? He breathed. He breathed life into it. Now, we can, we can talk about this a lot, but you know that word breath in the Hebrew is ruach? And it means air. Movement of air. Air in motion. And we've translated it in the Bible as breath of God, and we've translated it as life of God. In the New Testament, the word for Holy Spirit is pneuma, which also talks about breath. Literally, pneuma means current of air, breath, or breeze. But both words, ruach and pneuma, both words for the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, have the same connotations. It was God's aliveness that was transferred into man when God breathed into him. And in a very real way, God is our originator. Not only did he make us, but he breathed himself into us. You guys get that idea? We have a problem. We are born into this world disconnected from the source of true life. When that happened, instead of learning from God, from God being our source, instead of learning, we turn to other things. We learn from, what do we hear? Look inside yourself, right? You'll find all your answers inside. No, you won't. But we hear that a lot. Eastern meditation teaches you to withdraw inside yourself, right? Adam and Eve could see knowledge. They could taste knowledge. They could take it in like a fruit. But when they ate from the wrong tree, knowledge of good and evil made incomplete people in charge of their own solutions. I've used this uh, idea with my kids a lot, and that is, if you have a wrong, I call them presuppositions. In other words, if you have something that you think is right before you start your logical progression of thought, a presupposition, you presuppose something. If you have a wrong presupposition and you apply wrong thinking to it, what chance do you have of coming up with a right answer? It's not real good, but I suppose theoretically, scientists who are smarter than me have said that if you gave a monkey enough time, he could write the Bible. Um, 
what likelihood is there that you have a wrong presupposition, you apply wrong logic to it, you're going to get a right answer? It's just not going to happen. If you have wrong presupposition and you have right logic, do you have any chance of coming up with the right answer? No. You started off from a wrong presupposition. The only way you're going to get to the right answer is if you have the right presupposition, you apply right thinking to it, you will get a right answer. This works in math. This works in biology. Right? It works. It's a law. It does work. It's just like gravity. You have right ingredients. You put the right process. You're going to get a Reese's peanut butter cup. If you don't have peanut butter and you don't have chocolate, I have carrots and I have Cheetos. Is there any chance I can combine them to come up with Reese's peanut butter cup? No, there's not a chance. Okay, you guys get it. What is the resolution? Okay, this whole sin problem. What is the resolution? We've talked about it many times. What's the name of this message? God as our source. What is the resolution to the sin problem? Get reconnected to God. So let me ask you this question. Are you disconnected? How, how do you know if you're disconnected? Well, one, God's spirit is very good about letting us know, I miss you. Now, the Bible makes it pretty clear. There is therefore now no condemnation. Okay, so when Jesus comes to you, when the Holy Spirit comes to you, he doesn't, he doesn't heap condemnation on you. What does he do? I miss you. I love you. Come be with me. So you can know when the Holy Spirit is calling you. Are you disconnected? Do you have a sense of discomfort or anxiousness, anxiety? Do you feel a little guilty? Are you feeling a little empty? Those can be signs that you're disconnected. Remember that sin is first a condition. It's an attitude of the heart. It results in bad behavior, but the issue is not, like if you got to the bad behavior, you're past that, right? The condition is a prerequisite. So bad behaviors are the byproducts or the results of the condition of disconnectedness. Okay, so if you look and you see bad behaviors, it's a disconnection problem. Now, when you repent and ask God for forgiveness for this disconnection, You'll be reconnected to the source, and I guarantee behavior will change. I was in uh, Dallas in 1990, downtown Dallas. So, no, I'll take that back, it was 85. 1985, I was in downtown Dallas, and I was wandering through the streets. Um, I had just taken a, a class called Evangelism Explosion, Dr. James Kennedy. And uh, I had led people to the Lord before, but this was really the first time I had gone somewhere specifically hunting people down. Okay? So I'm wandering the streets of downtown Dallas, and I see a guy. I think, ah, I'm going to go talk to him. So I went up to him, and I started talking to him. And I honestly can't tell you what the conversation really was, but knowing me and knowing um, my life experience at that point, I'm sure it wasn't real pointed. It was kind of this, you know, around the mulberry bush and 
all that kind of stuff. But eventually we got to the point where my jaw hit the floor because I had not been talking a whole lot about anything that I thought was incredibly, in other words, I wasn't, hey, dude, you got a sin problem. You need to fix the sin problem. And I got the solution for you. It was more esoteric, more, ah, you know, kind of ethereal. I was hoping he was getting it. Well, my jaw hit the floor when he said this. What do I need to do to get saved? So I had obviously used the word saved or something, but he literally asked me, out of the blue, well, it wasn't really out of the blue, but you get the idea, what do I need to do to get saved? I said, well, um, I wasn't really prepared for that question. <laughs> but I said, well, um, there's this guy named Jesus, and I'd love to introduce you to him. Kid you not, I want to meet him. I've heard the word Jesus before, but I didn't realize he was a person. This is in downtown Dallas in 1985. Dallas is, if not the capital or the belt buckle of the belt of Bible, it's pretty close, right? So I was weird. I mean, it was weird that he said that, but he said, I've, I've heard the name Jesus, but I didn't realize he was a real person. I would like to meet him. So I did. I prayed with him and I led him to the Lord. I talked to him for three hours about God. Three hours. Downtown Dallas. He missed his bus six, seven times. We were sitting in a Burger King in downtown Dallas. It was a Burger King or McDonald's, one of the two. And we talked for three hours about God. He was hungry. What was he hungry for? Connection with the source. He had spent his whole life disconnected from the source and he wanted to get plugged in. I'm going to wrap up here, but ask yourself the question, are you disconnected? Is there any bondage in your life? Are you stuck in a cycle? Next week, Polly is going to talk about um, the anatomy of a stronghold. When we talk about strongholds, you know what a stronghold is. When I was teaching the Teen Kairos, I threw up pictures of castles. I've been in several castles. One of the most famous castles I've been in was uh, the Transylvanian castle, Count Dracula's castle. It's, uh, it's pretty impressive looking until you get in it, and then you the doors are about that high. You know, so you gotta go through secret passages everywhere. But it was a stronghold. Now, understand that was, there, there was no real Count Dracula as we have him in today's um, legends, but there was a castle that was uh, inhabited by Vlad the Impaler in the Transylvanian Mountains in Carpathia, which is now modern-day Romania. And uh, there is, that castle is still there, and you can still visit it. There are other castles I've been in. Um, there's a castle in Cyprus. I went to two castles in Cyprus, uh, one out in the middle of the plain, which Richard the Lionheart had built during the Crusades. And it was on a little hill so he could see for miles. Okay? It wasn't that impressive, but you have to understand, back then, castles were impressive things. Because remember, I mean, up to this point, 
fortifications were sticks, right? You built a wall out of sticks. Well, the castle was an outpost. The enemy has oftentimes created outposts in our hearts. Would you agree with that? He's created outposts in our hearts. He's given us lies that all of a sudden become core beliefs. God is not. How did the enemy get to um, Adam and Eve? Has God really said? Well, what he really meant was you'll be like him. Isn't that a good thing? And they started believing that lie. Okay? What has God done in your heart? Given you life. Is it possible that you'll have a stronghold if God is truly your source in all things? The answer is no. So if you have these strongholds, those strongholds are not from God. They're from the enemy. They may be caused by hurts. I can tell you I had a stronghold big stronghold that, was, that came out of pain. I mean, it really did. And I believe because somebody who was in authority over me hurt me, that God was going to hurt me. I know there are people in this room that have had the same type of experience. But I can tell you this, when I went to God the Father, I was not real comfortable. Why? Because my dad was the one who hurt me. And I was a whole lot more comfortable with Jesus. Because Jesus was my brother. And I didn't have a problem with my brother. Now, Jesus is not my brother. But you guys understand that that type of, that's how I related to Jesus a lot of times was, well, he's my big brother, and he's going to take care of me, and it's all good. But God was a little bit, and the Holy Spirit I didn't really understand real well. You know, in traditional church, that's, I went to a Mennonite church for a couple years, and I went to a Methodist church, and I went to a Baptist church, and, and the Holy Spirit wasn't talked about a whole lot. Okay, so I wasn't real sure about the Holy Spirit. But I could relate to Jesus. To get out of the cycle, get reconnected to your source. When you get reconnected to your source, your core beliefs will change. Right? They will. I guarantee you. I don't view God the Father the way I did 10 years ago. Things have changed for me. My relationship with God the Father is very different than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago when that hurt originally happened. It has changed. My core belief has changed. I don't understand it like I will because, again, we talked about this earlier. I understand God in very finite terms. And God is an infinite God. And when I say God is a father, I still, even though I have a better understanding of what that means, I still don't understand it like God designed it. When I say God is good, I define it in terms of what I understand good to be. And that's normal. But what I'm saying is, is that God's goodness is infinite. Bible again says God's mercies are new every morning. How can they be new every morning? God hasn't changed, but yet at the same time, I'm learning new things about him all the time, right? You read a scripture, you can read a scripture a hundred times, and on the hundred and first time, the doors fly off, right? 
Chris, have you ever had that experience? You've read that passage I don't know how many times. I mean, just go back to the Ten Commandments for me. How many times have I read the Ten Commandments in my lifetime? I became a Christian at the age of five. I had this revelation at the age of 47. That's 42 years of reading, and thousands of times, I guarantee you, thousands of times, I read the Ten Commandments. I taught the Ten Commandments in children's church multiple times. And I read them the same way, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of times. And then when somebody said, hey, have you ever thought about it like this? I went, wow. And I read it again, and it made a huge difference. I still guarantee you that I don't understand it like I should. But it is pretty incredible when you think about it. So I want you to do this with me. We're not talking about behavior modification. We're talking about getting connected to the source. Okay, so I'm going to just ask you to do a couple things. And I want you to really sincerely do this in your heart. How do you get connected? When you talk about electricity, it's real simple. You take an electrical plug and you stick it in the outlet, right? You want to get reconnected with God. It's just as simple. Now, I don't know. Most of you guys in here are probably more connected with God than I am. So this may not mean anything to you. But what I want to invite you to do is, in a very specific way, I want you to connect with God. I want you to ask him some questions. Last week we talked about hearing God, and we finished by just asking God some simple questions. That was revolutionary for me, because I know how to pray. God, I love you. I can even do the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I still do it in the King James Version. But When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said pray like this, right? So we've, we've heard that. We know how to pray. I want you to ask God a question that's not in the Bible. The answer could be found in the Bible because the Bible reveals God's character and it reveals who he is. But I want you to ask this question. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, is there anything in my life that I've thought of as being the problem? So I'm going to invite you to just you don't have to close your eyes. You can look at me, but there's probably prettier things to look at. Steve looks at his wife. Good job. Close your eyes. Just find a quiet place and just ask God that question. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, is there a problem in my life? Is there a sin? Is there bad behavior in my life that I've thought of as being the problem? In other words, this one thing is keeping me from. I'll never be who God called me to be as long as I have this issue. I can't teach because... I can't lead someone to the Lord because those types of issues. God, is there an issue in my life that I've thought of as being the problem?
if you have something in mind, I want you to keep that in mind, but then I want you to ask God this question. What are these behaviors, what are these issues actually symptoms of? Remember, sin is not a behavior problem. What is the actual problem that this is a symptom of? Last question. Jesus, how have I been trying to be my own source? How have I been trying to be my own source? When we define freedom in Freedom Ministries, we say it like this. Freedom is not the absence of something. It's the presence of someone. Okay? And that's, that's basically what he's talking about. Again, sin is not a behavior problem. It's a connectedness issue. Do you fix connectedness by doing something? Sort of. But it's more about being with God, right? It's about being. It's not about doing. That's how we fix the connectedness problem. Be with God. Just be with Him. Real simple, isn't it? When we get busy, it's not always evident that it's a simple issue, is it? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for being our source of true life. We choose today, God, to be connected to you. And God, we do just now repent for trying to be our own source, trying to find, trying to be, trying to do. When God, you're asking us to just be yours. God, we don't want to think that way anymore. We don't want to live that way anymore. <clears throat> 